0: Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. All the Indianapolis Colts had to do to make the NFL playoffs was beat the worst team in the league. They lost. Are your hopes more or less secure than those of the Colts fans? Lead teacher Jeff Norris starts the new series Living Hope with this sermon entitled Salvation's Hope which covers 1 Peter chapter 1, verses one to five. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. All right, we're starting a new series this morning. It's a, it's a bit
1: of a shorter series. It'll, it'll carry us through the end of January. And it's a little bit different in the sense of we're not going to study through the entire book of 1 Peter, although at some point in the future, I'd love to come back and do that but we're going to take just the first chapter and sit in it a little longer than we would normally if we were going through uh, an entire book of the Bible. And so we're gonna be in 1 Peter 1 this morning and uh, for the next, like I said, for the next three weeks. It's my aim that we will get through the first five verses. I'll go ahead and tell you in the nine o'clock, we did not do that. Uh, There's a lot to sit in. There's a lot that God has for us. And so if that happens again, We'll pick up where we leave off this week, and we'll pick up there next week, and no harm, no foul. But a a question I want to ask that leads us into where God is taking us in scriptures this morning simply this What would we have if we had no hope? If there were no hope at all for any of us in any arena of life, in any circumstance, in any situation, There was no hope. What would happen? You know, there was an an author who very famously wrote one time about hell, trying to help people understand what biblically, what we don't know much about heaven or hell, but the Bible speaks about it and try to begin to understand what, what would hell be like? What is it like? And interestingly, the thing that he brought out most in what he wrote was not what you might think. It wasn't the, it wasn't fire. It wasn't the pain. It wasn't those types of things. One of the things that he brought out most prominently was that in hell, there is no hope that on this earth, in this life, there's always, regardless of the situation or circumstance, there's always the ability to muster up a glimmer of hope that something will change, that something will be different. But he states that in hell, that glimmer is is gone. And that the anguish of hell in part is that for all of eternity, each time you try to muster up hope, you're quickly reminded it'll never happen. There is no hope. Now, certainly I understand that is a heck of a depressing way to start a sermon. But it leads us into just that question, what would we have if we had no hope? I want you to think about Peter, the author of this letter that we're gonna be looking at. Peter was an apostle of Jesus, he was one of the 12. Even more than that, he was one of the inner circle of three of the closest friends of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And Peter certainly knew of what it was like to lose hope. Imagine the shame that Peter felt on that Saturday after the Friday of Jesus' death as he begins to recount the three times that he denied him in the courtyard while Jesus was on trial. Um, imagine the suffocating hopelessness that he felt as he probably very uh, aimlessly wandered the streets of Jerusalem trying to find a place to hide after the very one whom he had staked his life on had died. Because remember, Peter and the apostles, although they were so very close to Jesus and they learned from him for three years, they still had a very uh, deep misunderstanding of the nature of what kingdom he was bringing. They, they were still operating under the thought process that when the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of Israel would come, that he would come to deliver Israel militarily, politically, governmentally, that he would march into the seats of power within Rome and overthrow them so that Israel would have back his king. And so Jesus is the king, yes, but their thoughts about Jesus were far too small. They wanted a king over Israel. Jesus is king over all the universe. They wanted a king that would deliver them from uh, political oppression. He wanted to deliver them from the oppression of the enemy, Satan himself, and sin and death all the ways in which we are in slavery. And so because they had uh, misinterpreted the scriptures and misapplied the expectations of the Messiah, when Jesus died, their hopes were dashed, hopelessly in anguish that the one that we said, yes, this is him, has died. And when Jesus died, Peter's hopes died with him. All the apostles, all the followers. They were so afraid and they were so hopeless that they, they bunkered up in a room and they wouldn't come out and they had the door locked because they thought, we're next. They're gonna come kill us because we followed him. And they lived with hopelessness all of the rest of Friday and all of Saturday into Sunday morning. But when Jesus resurrected, all of a sudden, their hopes were resurrected even beyond what they were originally. And what Peter calls in this letter that we're gonna look at, he calls it a living hope. In other words, he's saying this I had a hope and it was misplaced and it died, and now I have a better hope and it's living. He's living, and my hope is wrapped up in Him. And more specifically, my hope is wrapped up in his resurrection. Because through faith in Jesus, what the Bible teaches us is that when we believe upon Christ by faith, that he indwells us, but even more than that, that's amazing, but even more than that, that he imputes to us, that's a big word that means he attributes to us everything that's his as if it were our own, his righteousness all of his holiness in the stance of our standing before God. We're not sinless now, but we will be one day and he's making us more and more like him. But one of the things that he imputes to us is he says, you are resurrected, meaning you will only die one death physically. And upon your death, you will immediately come into my presence. And then when I return to make all things new, to usher in the fullness of the kingdom that I've started with my first coming, you will be bodily resurrected, glorified fully, just like I am now. So the grave that I defeated becomes the grave that you will defeat. The fullness of the glorified body that I exist in now at the right hand of the Father will be your body it will be the fullness of everything you've ever hoped for and that's why peter calls it a living hope because it's alive in jesus a great biblical commentator uh, in the 20th century a guy named edmund clowney had great influence over a number of guys that you would uh, men and women that you would recognize who've had influence under his under his leadership Clowney makes a distinction in his commentary on 1 Peter between the types of hopes that we carry with us, and there's two primarily. One is fond hope, and the other is sure hope. Fond hope is, is fragile. It's it's wishful hope. It's uh, it's the I hope against hope that this happens. But it's undergirded by, uh, as we, as we kind of look underneath the surface of Fond Hope, it's almost always undergird, undergirded by the belief that I, don't re- I really don't think it's gonna happen. It's where I'm at about tomorrow night. I hope that Alabama wins. But I really I really don't think we will. And I've had Georgia fans tell me the same thing. I really hope we win, but I don't think we're going to. And so we got a bunch of fans that are going into a game with no confidence. But that's fragile hope, that's fond hope. It's the hope that often accompanies the, the really hard circumstances in this life. That even as those who know Jesus and we participate in this living hope, we get caught up in fond hope. I really hope that the cancer goes away, but underneath I really don't believe that it will. And, and sometimes that's absolutely true, but our hope is fragile. I really hope that that uh, broken relationship can be restored. But deep down, I really don't think it will. I don't don't have an expectation accompanied with fond hope that something is actually going to change. So hope is really a hope that invites us in to wish when it's fond hope. But Peter and all of the writers of the scriptures, as it pertains to Jesus and his kingdom, they talk about a sure hope. And a sure hope is what it says it is. It's sure. You can stake your life upon it. It's not a hope that is fragile. It's a hope that is strong. And it's not just a hope that might happen. It's a hope that will happen. And so when we talk about hope as Christians a lot of time, as it pertains to what's ultimately going to happen for the follower of Christ, we must speak with sure hope. We must believe with sure hope. Why? Because Jesus resurrected. He defeated the grave. Our hope is secure as is his resurrection is secure. And so we sit in that. It's not a hope that invites us into wish, it's a hope that invites us into rest in his assurance. And so we hope. This is why when someone dies. We often quote the verse from the apostle Paul where it says, we mourn, but not as those who are without hope, because we have the sureness of the hope of Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead. There's an old saying that says, you build trust in drops, you lose trust in buckets. And it can feel that way with hope sometimes, can't it? Feels like in many ways we, we build hope over the course of years. And then one really horrible, hard, dark circumstance situations comes into our life and it feels like all that hope has been poured out in buckets. And what this letter and what all of scripture reminds us time and time again is that The hope for the follower of Jesus is an eternal hope. It's a sure hope, it's a living hope. And listen, it's not based on anything about us. It's based entirely upon him, fully and completely upon him. This is why we have sung for a couple hundred years now in our churches the hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He is our living hope. So the apostle Paul wrote a letter for that very reason, to give hope to a people who are beginning to experience hopelessness because of the persecution that they're enduring in the Roman empire. He he writes this letter, uh, I'm gonna say 64 AD, we don't know for sure, but it's probably early to mid 60s of the first century. Which would have been, in the, as we read through the entire letter, and I would encourage you to do so, even though we're studying chapter one here, as you read through the letter, you begin to see, you see it right at the beginning of the letter and all throughout, that these are people who are persecuted. This is most likely happening under uh, the, the very evil rule of Nero, the Roman emperor. And this is the, this is the emperor who infamously uh, took some Christians, dipped them in tar, lit them on fire impaled them with spears and set them up in, the, in his garden, his lights, torches for his garden. And, and there was incredible persecution in the city of Rome under Nero. Now Nero was crazy, he was a megalomaniac. He's, most likely, most historians agree that he was the one who set Rome on fire so that he could get new buildings out of the city and then he blamed it on the Christians, he was crazy. But he hated the Christians and he was persecuting them in the city of Rome. Well, that persecution, like waves, ripple waves of when you throw a rock in, the, in, in water began to move out to the, the outskirts of the kingdom such that Peter now is writing to a group of people who were in, back then they called it Asia Minor. Think modern day Turkey in the surrounding area. And he's writing a group of Christians throughout these regions who are beginning to either fear the persecution that's happening in the city of Rome or even beginning to experience that very same persecution as Nero sends out orders to the various magistrates of the Roman Empire to do the same to Christians there that I'm doing here in the city of Rome. And so even if you weren't experiencing that persecution yet, you can imagine how debilitating and how hopeless the fear that sets in that this is coming our way. And so Peter writes this letter for the sole purpose to remind them of the gospel and give them hope. As if to say, if you too are lit on fire and impaled with spears, you don't lose hope. You have a living hope that nothing can touch. Let's read it together. Starting in verse one, chapter one of First Peter, verse one, says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the fa- the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection from Christ of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Father, would you bless the reading and the teaching of your word this morning? Would you give us insight and wisdom through your Holy Spirit? Would you change us and transform us as a result? And would you do it for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's three questions I'm going to ask this morning that again may carry over into next week. But three questions that come out of these first five verses that help us dig into what Peter wants us to see here. The first question is simply this Who are God's people? Who, who is Peter saying, This is who we are? For the original readers, this is who you are. The, the scriptures, as they have been preserved for us, means this is who we are. If you follow Jesus, if your faith is in him, What's true of us? Who are we as God's people? And he answers that right off the bat after he says that, hey, it's me, it's Peter, an apostle of Christ, here's my authority. I'm not just some random guy writing you. I'm the one who was commissioned by Christ himself to go and make disciples. So he says that right off the bat, but he quickly moves into this is who you are. I'm an apostle, here's who you are and he identifies with them. He says two things right off the bat. He says, first, we're exiles in the world. Your translation may say strangers. We're exiles or strangers in the world. And then secondly, uh, we're, we're dispersed. Your translation may say scattered. So you're strangers and scattered or exiles and dispersed. This is who we are all throughout the world. Another way to say it is that we are pilgrim people. We're a people who are pilgrims in this land on a journey, as it were, to a, to a new land, to a new promised land. And, and immediately when you hear, if you've been in or around church, if you know your Bible, even if you don't know the Bible that well, you're, you're familiar with that language, promised land more than likely. And you know that there's a story in the Bible about this guy named Moses that God raised up to lead God's people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. And that he delivers them from the bondage and the tyranny and the oppression of slavery in Egypt. And he leads them not straight into the promised land, but into the wilderness. And for 40 years, they wander in the wilderness. And they're pilgrims in a foreign land. And he provides for them every step along the way. But they wander around in this foreign land, not as citizens of that land, but as citizens of knowing, hey, we are a people of God, citizens of God. But they keep knowing, they keep understanding from what God tells them that this is going somewhere. There is a promised land that I'm going to bring you into. And so that's history. That's true. That happened. That's reality. But, and so that's an incredible story of how God led the Israelites to what we now know as Israel, the land of Israel. Israel the promised land, but it serves biblically as a foreshadowing that will be true of the greater redemptive narrative the greater story that God's writing for all people. They had, again, they had too small of a picture. They thought God's people were just Israel and that the promised land was just the land of Israel physically on this earth. But what God is trying to help people understand is he's saying, look, I'm going to call people from all tongues, all tribes, all nations, all people groups unto myself through the finished work of Christ. And it's not going to be about a land in the Middle East. It's going to be about this new heavens and the new earth. All things will be made new. And until I come to do that, you're in the wilderness now. You're pilgrims in this land. This land is what? This land is this earth. You've heard a Christian say many times over the years, uh, this world is not my home. It's not a pious statement of self-righteousness. It's a biblical statement of, of reality. This world is not our home. Our citizenship is not tied to anything here, but tied entirely to heaven and to God to the kingdom that is here in part now that will be in full. And so we're strangers, we're exiles in this land and God has scattered us all about. He scattered us all throughout the world to be lights in the darkness, to be little kingdom bearers everywhere that we go. We're signposts. Our life is literally a signpost for that kingdom. So that if you come into contact with me, Lord willing, by God's grace and through Christ and the Holy Spirit doing his work through me, you have come in contact with the king. You come in contact with the kingdom of God. You are now seeing what is true now for those who have Christ, but what will be true when he comes again. We're ambassadors for Christ, scattered throughout the earth to drive out darkness through the light of the world, Jesus himself who dwells within us. That's who we are. We're strangers and we're scattered. We're exiles. And what's the second word? We're dispersed. But let me, let me ask you a question. Here's another question to ask. What, what makes us strangers? What makes us exiles? God's people throughout the Old Testament, they, they knew exilic life. They knew it with the Exodus, they knew it again when the Assyrians came and took over the northern tribes of Israel, the 10 northern tribes, and they dispersed them all throughout the Middle East. They knew it again, and that was in 722 BC. They knew it again in 586 BC when the Babylonians came and drove out and took over the southern tribes of Judah. And they took them captive and made them live in Babylon and they were exiles in Babylon. This is a part of what God kept saying to his people over and over and over again, not just metaphorically, but really and truly through experience, you are strangers, you're exiles. You have to learn to live as strangers in the place where I've put you. Lights in the darkness, ambassadors for my kingdom, in the midst of those who don't know me as king. But why? What makes us strangers? What makes us exiles? The temptation is to answer that question with this thought or with this answer. Well, it's how we live. That's what makes us strangers. That's what sets us apart. That's why I'm an exile and my citizenship is in heaven. It's how I live. I live differently. But I want to encourage you to not think that way. Because fundamentally, it's not about how we live as Christians, it's fundamentally about how we love. And what I mean by that is simply how we love Jesus first and foremost, and then yes, of course, through the love of Christ in us, how we love others. But it's fundamentally not a behavior issue. It's fundamentally a heart issue. To illustrate that, I'll I'll, I'll share with you this story. I shared with you last week, if you were here and tuned in, uh, a story about when I was a freshman in college and I pledged a fraternity, so why not make it two weeks in a row? I'll show you, uh, share another story from that time of my life. I grew up in a small town, and with that, there were certain things that a small town life in the South affirmed. One of the things that was affirmed in a small town life was that if you were a good, clean cut Young man who went to church and participated in church and proclaimed faith in Jesus, then you got lots of accolades. You got affirmed in a lot of ways. I got a lot of what a great young man you are comments. And I loved it. I loved it because I naturally, my temperament, my personality and the way that God has wired me and because of my sin nature, I crave approval from others. And so because of that, that was, and of course I realized this Years later, looking back, I can't see it at the time. That was my God. My God was the approval of others. And Jesus was just something I wrapped my behavior in so that it got me the approval that I wanted. So really my God wasn't God himself. My God was my own personal reputation and glory. And he helped me get what I ultimately wanted. And it wasn't him. So I go off to college. Well, now I'm in a fraternity context where they don't care about me being a good young man. It's not a value of fraternities at the University of Alabama, I'll just tell you. And so I show up and I am dead set on marking myself as a stranger in this place and being an incredible witness for Jesus by doing something profound that for sure would change their heart. I wasn't going to drink alcohol. And because if you don't drink, man, that's what Christians do, we don't drink. That's gonna make you go, why don't you drink? And then I'm gonna say, well, because I don't know. And that literally happened to me. Guy asked me, why don't you drink? You're weird, you're a stranger, why don't you drink? And I I literally didn't know what to say. My only answer was because I'm a Christian. And he says, well, that sounds horrible. And I said, you're kind of right. It does sound horrible. But that was all I knew. My only concept was behavior change. That's what's gonna mark me out in the world. Well, let me tell you, my, my love of Jesus, even though my behavior looked like a Jesus lover at some level, my, my behavior was not, not marked by love of Jesus. It wasn't there. My love of Jesus was about as deep as this paper. So by the time initiation rolls around, almost six months later, and I've just gritted my teeth through all of pledgeship as the, as the weird dude who doesn't drink, I was tired of not getting affirmed. My God was not being met. My reputation was suffering. Nobody thought I was cool. So on the night of the initiation, I said, forget it. It's not worth it. Love of Jesus is an inch deep at best. Approval of others is way more valuable. And so I got incredibly drunk. And I'll never forget this. This guy, one of my pledge brothers comes up to me and he puts his arm around me in the midst of our drunken stuporness. And he says, I always knew you were one of us. And in that moment, in the midst of my drunkenness, I sobered up quickly enough to let my heart sink because even though I didn't know Jesus very well, I knew him well enough to know, something's not right about that. I just, I I can't even put a finger on it, but I I don't, I I didn't know the language of the Bible then. I didn't know what to say, but now I can look back on it. I can say, it's because I'm to be an exile, not because of how I live, but because of who I love. And to say it even more biblically centered is I'm to be an exile and a stranger in this world, not because of how I live, but because who loves me? Because my love is fickle. His never, ever stops, ever He pursues me with reckless abandon. His love for me is unchanging. It's steadfast. It's never ending. Never give up. Always and forever love. And even when my love is faithless, his love is faithful. And when we are marked by the love of Christ, we become weird in this world. So that when we're not getting the affirmation from the people around us, when we're not living to the standard of those around us, that the world says, this is what life is about. We go, I'm okay with that because I got Jesus. I'm okay with that because his love marks me. And yes, of course, when his love marks me and when he lives through me, yes, my life changes. Yes, my behavior changes, but that's not the point. Why are we exiles? Why are we strangers? It's not because of how we live. It's because of who loves us and how we love him and others in return. And it is a deep, thick, abiding love in Jesus. And so let me tell you something. Sadly, we have created a church culture in America that the rest of the world laughs at because a lot of the world is getting persecuted just like these recipients of Peter. And they look at American Christianity and they literally laugh, they've told me, because they see our faith as paper thin. They see it all about a behavioralistic endeavor and not about a deep abiding love with Christ because when circumstances come that we don't like, we fold like paper folds. The substance is missing. The deep abiding love of Christ is missing. We're more concerned with looking Christian than being Christian. And Peter says, if you want hope You gotta stop. You gotta get out of the reputation-stroking world. You gotta get out of what people think about you. You gotta get out of whatever you're comparing yourself to horizontally. And you have to anchor deeply in who he says you are and deeply in the love of Christ for you and watch him transform you. And then you will gladly embrace the calling to be a stranger and to be scattered in this world. This past week, I wrote this on social media as I was processing through all this, as I was remembering my story from the past and as I was sitting with the Lord and it just invoked within me just the, um, the need to kind of confess, but then also just try to speak truth. And then I felt like, and I, I don't know, I hope this was the Lord because y'all know how I feel about social media, but just thought maybe I'll share this. Maybe I'll share this in a way that can encourage others. So this is what I wrote said, I'm a chronic people pleaser. I love when people think well of me. So when you mix a behavioral centered Christianity with a people pleasing temperament, you end up with a lethal cocktail of pride fueled behavior modification, ultimately driving you farther away from Christ. This is why a secure identity in Christ and a joyful rest in his finished work is so vital. Christianity's nature is that of grace-saturated spiritual transformation, not performance-driven behavior modification. One leads to joy-filled rest and obedience. The other leads to burden, duty, and restlessness. For some of you, for some of you here right now, some of you at home, your, your concept of Christianity has been no deeper than behavior modification. Be better, try harder, do better, Be good. And if you do it well enough, God will start giving you good things. The hard news for you to hear this morning is that is not Christianity. That's moral driven behavior modification that God wants nothing to be a part of. What he longs for is spiritual transformation that we would actually die to our moralism and our immoralism, that we die to it and we bring it all before him and let him do what only he can do by his grace and by his mercy, which is transform us. It's not about our behavior. It's about the heart. But there's another thing that he says about who we are. He says that we're, we're a people of exile, we're a people of dispersion, but he also says we are secure We are secure in the salvation work of the Godhead. Right there in verse two, I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, we're not gonna get through verse five. We are secure in the salvation work of of the Godhead. Look at verse two, right here off the bat, from the very beginning, Peter says, I want you to remember what God has done for you. And I want you to see all three persons of the Trinity at work for your salvation. And so he says, right there in verse 2, he says, He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his His blood. And so first he draws out the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, when you when you hear foreknowledge, I I want you to just think more. The the better way to think about that word in the original language is is more about for, for action, for purpose. It's not like God had this uh, prior knowledge about who's gonna believe in him and who doesn't, and that's for. We tend to try to define foreknowledge biblically that way, but that's not how the Bible uses foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is more about God purposing in advance his sovereign purposes, his sovereign choice even. I don't know if you called it earlier, but he didn't just call us exiles, he called us elect exiles. And this makes us incredibly uncomfortable, we know this. When we start talking about election and we talk about the sovereign choice of God, it makes us incredibly uncomfortable. We've talked a lot here before about the reality of when you're dealing with an infinite God, with infinite wisdom and who is eternal, who's always been and always will be, who's not created, who is immutable, he never changes. When you're talking about that reality and the things that he creates, and then over here, you've got the created, you've got the finite, You've got finite wisdom, finite understanding, finite uh, everything, and you wrap that even in the brokenness of sin that's infected us all. What ends up happening is we have a really hard time figuring out how a sovereign God can choose those who are his before the foundation of the world, elect them even, and for purpose them for for his kingdom while also holding to the truth that the Bible also teaches that we are held responsible for the decisions that we make and we have free will. And I'll just go ahead and tell you, dig into it, but you're not gonna figure it out. It's not gonna happen. In fact, the scriptures give us a little bit of a window into the reality that we will spend all of eternity mining the depths of the riches of the wisdom of God. So, in other words, if you die in Christ, you're not going to immediately go into the presence of God and go, man, I see it now. Sovereignty of God, free will of man, totally makes sense. Instantaneously, as soon as I get into heaven, God says, no, no, you're going to actually spend all of eternity figuring that one out. So, what makes us think that on this side of heaven, we're going to figure that out? We're not. But it's actually incredibly, incredibly assuring. Because if there's a God who sovereignly purpose, purposes and there's a God who elects and there's a God who chooses and there's a God with for purposing, then that means that there is never one millisecond of my existence knowing Jesus where I can take any pride in anything I've done. None. I can't for one instance say, this is what I did to warrant warrant salvation. This is what I did to get the approval and the acceptance of God upon me. This is what I put together. God takes that out of the equation. He says, I did it all. And not only did I do it all, I did it before the thought of you was ever in existence. So that in verse three, little precursor to next week, Peter can't even talk about what we have in the living hope that we have without starting with... Blessed be the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who by his great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope. He can't even say the sentence, hey, this is who you are. You're born into a living hope without prefacing it with there's a God who purposed this that I have to start off blessing and honoring and praising because it's all his mercy all his mercy. We can't take credit for anything. And when that hits us, when the grace of God in abundance floors us, we worship just like Peter worships. Blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. To you be all glory, honor, and praise. You are the one to whom I will lift up my eyes to the heavens where my help comes from. And it's not just help to get me through this day. It's help to get me out of hell. It's help to get me out of sin and death and sorrow. It's help to bring me into the eternal presence of God most high forever and ever and ever. That's why we lift our eyes to the heavens where our help comes from. He is the one. He is the one, not us. It's by his grace, by his mercy, by his love, all for his glory. So next week, we'll actually get into the hope that's grounded in the goodness of God. Father, would you teach us? Would you teach us how to stand in awe of you because of your great mercy, because of the great love with which you have loved us, because of the grace, immeasurable and unthinkable as it is, because of the grace that covers every square inch of our lives. Teach us the hope in the secure eternal hope of Christ, the sure hope based on the resurrection that is now our resurrection. We love you, and we thank you, oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together.
0: You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.